opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And welcome back. You are tuned in to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are always available via podcast, both on KUCI's website and at realpeopleoc.com. I'm your guest host, Marie Stone. As you know, we're dedicated to profiling men and women in Orange County who are doing amazing things for their community and, in this case, for their country. What is more amazing than running for Congress in this quagmire that we find ourselves in, uh, representing the folks of the 48th District of California in the House of Representatives? So that is what we are talking about today. More importantly, we're talking about making sure Dana Robacher no longer um, no longer exists in our district. I guess I should play the disclaimer again. These are these are my opinions, but uh, but I think they're. I think they're the right ones. <laughs> so I am uh, hugely honored today to be here with Harley Ruda, who is a successful businessman, philanthropist, and attorney who built several of the country's largest real estate firms and now serves on the board of or as an advisor to firms in real estate, retail, a variety of other industries. He has a diverse and extensive success in companies of all sizes and scopes, ranging from early stage companies to national conglomerates over his career, and in cultures that were well-defined or trying to find their way due to mergers and changing environments. The youngest of four and the son of a successful real estate entrepreneur, Harley practiced law with one of the country's largest law firms before joining his father's real estate brokerage. He tripled the company's revenue by focusing on a unique agent-broker-centric culture and provided extraordinary customer service by embracing and championing new technology, innovative marketing, and an uncommon commitment to professional development and teamwork. Harley has his MBA from The Ohio State University, his JD from Capital University Law School. He's active in a number of charities and civic organizations over the years. He's been involved in fighting homelessness, domestic violence, human rights offenders, supporting education for the disadvantaged, as well as supporting access to higher education, saving military jobs, working with a myriad of civil organizations and businesses to drive economic development. He lives in Laguna Beach. He's married to the award-winning author, Kira Ruda. They have four kids um, who are all in their 20s, each very accomplished in their own ways. One of them, hopefully, um, will come back to KUCI as a um, musician. We're going to keep our eye out open for him. And um, my huge pleasure to welcome him on. Harley, hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Ah, thanks for coming on. This is, you know... So every every month that goes by in the Trump administration, I say this is the most important month for us to have this conversation, and it's always every day is oh it's the most important day for us to have this conversation. Every day brings new joys. Yeah, the interesting thing about Trump, he's changed the news cycle from a twenty four hour news cycle to a four hour news cycle. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. There's a, you know. There's always breaking news. Every time I turn around, I'm like the breaking news. I'm like oh for God's sake, there's always breaking. <laughs> So before we dive into the future and maybe the present, maybe we can start with um, just a couple of minutes about the past and sort of what happened, what's been happening, specifically with Orange County, um, because we live in a red county who, for the first time in eight decades, voted for a Democrat. 
when the country didn't, uh, well, we can argue about that, but, you know, let's agree the country didn't vote for a Democrat. And uh, my friend Dana's been in office for a thousand years. or he, so, so he's been in office for 15 terms, which is some argument for term limits, in my opinion. Um, so maybe you can just talk about what you think is kind of give us a political sense of our county and where we live and and uh, kind of what the heck is happening here. Sure, sure. So Orange County's uh, often noted as the Orange Wall. It has historically been a Republican uh, county, voted Republican. And as you pointed out, it did vote for Hillary Clinton since the first time since 1936 that a Democrat has carried the county. And Dana Rohrbacher, who's in the 48th District and who I'm hoping to unseat and plan to unseat, has been elected 15 times. So when he is up for re-election in November of 2018, he will have served 30 years, 30 years in Congress. He also made the statement when he first arrived in Congress that he uh, believed in term limits and would only serve three term limits. But uh, he's now on 15 and, uh, and plans on running again. That's uh, that's incredible. So do you think he's just entrenched and everybody sees his name on the ballot and nobody's cared up until this point? And they're like, well, he's, you know, I don't know. I'm happy enough. So I'll just vote for him again. Like nobody can love this guy. I, I mean, he's kind of crazy. Yeah, he's certainly becoming kind of that, uh, you know, the embarrassing uncle at the wedding and <laughs> is doing that more and more. But you are right. A lot of incumbents have a, a built-in ability to have the name recognition that challengers don't. So for a challenger to be successful, the challenger has to do a couple things. Uh, one, first of all, you got to have a, a, a great campaign, and a great campaign means having a good candidate that's properly capitalized. So in some ways, it's kind of like a business, right? you got to have the right organizational structure, and you got to be properly capitalized to win. In the case of going against a, an incumbent that's been there for 28 years, like Dana Rohrbacher, You've got to be able to do two things. You've got to be able to educate voters as to his voting record Mm -hmm. so that they don't take for granted that he represents their values when, in fact, he most likely does not. And second, help educate them that there is a challenger, somebody else, that better represents those voters' values in that district and why they should vote for that person. And in, in this case, that's me. Yeah, I mean, I really take your point there because I feel like how else did he get in when everybody's voting for Hillary? Um, but not everybody, but, you know, that that she took the vote and he still remains, even though he's, um, as you say, he's becoming kind of the crazy uncle at the at the dinner table. Right, right. So, right. so Hillary did win this district by 1.7 percent. And that's not a huge number, but it's uh, it's a huge number in the sense that that's the first time in a long time a Democrat has won this county, let alone this district. It has been historically Republican-leaning, and yet there are demographic shifts taking place that include Republican registrations going down, Democratic registrations going up, NPP, which is no party preference or what we might call independence, uh, going up as well. So the trend lines are suggesting that the days of of Rohrbacher are coming to an end, and uh, that's exactly what we hope to see. And what do you feel about the county itself? Like, do you feel, I don't know how long, how long have you lived here? We've been in Southern California about 10 years now. Yeah. So do you feel like there's um, different trends? Like, I feel like Laguna, I've lived in Laguna for 20 years, and it's changed a lot. Um, In some, you know, we can argue about whether it's good or bad, but in a lot of ways, it feels like, um, I don't know, the entrepreneurial spirit of the county feels stronger than ever. And I I don't know if that's Republican leaning or... 
Um, I don't know how you feel about kind of the, the demographic of Orange County and whether that's changed over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Yeah, I think Orange County's always been a leader in innovation. I think that's actually mm-hmm. one of the hallmarks of not uh, just the United States, but the uh, the poster child for that innovation is the state of California. It always has been. And, and Orange County certainly, and Southern California in general, um, embodies that innovation. And uh, I think it's really important that we have a congressman who embraces that. And we don't have that in the case of uh, uh, our current congressman who uh, seems to be stuck in the Middle Ages and, and actually is still one of the few people on earth, let alone in Congress, that is a climate change denier. Right. I heard he believes there was life on Mars at one point. I've heard all kinds of crazy things about Rohrbacher, and I look them up, and they're true. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think, oh, this has got to be a false news story. But no, it's actually true. <laughs> he does have some crazy ideas. And kind of in bed with the, I mean, he's really embroiled in this Russian scandal. He is, and, and there's a, a long history there, and it's a long history that's not completely transparent as to why he has such strong feelings of of personal feelings as well as political uh, leanings in supporting better relations with Russia. He was jokingly called by Kevin McCarthy, Putin's favorite congressman, and uh, and that uh, I think the exact quote Kevin said was that uh, uh, Congressman Kevin McCarthy said that he believes there's two people on uh, Putin's payroll, and that's Trump and Rohrbacher. So we don't really know why he is hell-bent on better relations with Russia at any expense. Uh, I, I, I struggle to understand how that brings value to the constituents of the 48th District when there are so many other things that are more important that I would expect a congressman of 28 years to be focused on. Right, right. So let's define the 48th District so everybody knows what we're talking about because um, even I, until recently, was pretty ignorant of what constituted my own district and who my people were. So it's mostly the coastal region, but maybe you can kind of talk about which which cities in Orange County we're talking about here. Sure. The 48th District, basically on the north side, is Seal Beach, so just below Long Beach. And from Seal Beach, Sunset Beach, Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, and a little bit of Laguna Niguel, well, Laguna Niguel and a little bit of uh, Dana Point. And that's kind of your your north-south axis. Uh, the western boundary is the ocean, and the eastern boundary is roughly the 73 and the 405. There's a couple bleed-over spots uh, on the 405 where it goes into uh, Fountain Valley and uh, Garden Grove. Uh, but you also have Costa Mesa in there and Elisa Viejo. So this is probably the richest stretch of, I mean, the most, if you're going to equate economic well-being with, um, I mean, these are kind of the, the big ticket cities, right? Yeah, it's interesting you you ask that question. I don't get that question very often. And actually, the 48th district of the 435 districts in the United States um, is the fourth richest district and the fifth smartest district. In California? In the U.S. In the U.S.? Yes. Oh, I got to write that down. I'm going to tell my mom. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe we're starting to ferret out how Rohrbacher won and how Hillary won. Do you think? Yeah, we we are. And and you know the interesting thing is that you know we we really have to get away from whether people have a D next to their name or an R next to their name or or an, an I for independent. Because when I speak to people around here, whether it's the 48th district, Southern California, California, or across the United States, most Americans fall within the 20 yard lines. They are progressive yet socially responsible and conservative. They just want to make sure that uh, what we do, that we can pay for it, that we're not saddle, saddling 
our children, their grandchildren, and future generations with an unmanageable federal accumulated deficit. So it's really important that we address issues in a way that is re- represents the progressive values that most of us hold, but also making sure that we're being fiscally sound. Perfect. I love that. Um, speaking of issues, why don't we get into some of those? Uh, top on people's mind tonight, I think, is probably, well, I don't know. There's so many, but <laughs> one of on people's mind, I know, is healthcare care uh, coming up yet again. So hopefully by the time you get into office, we'll... We'll still be debating it, and it won't be a done deal. Um, but uh, yeah, give us your give us your views on where we are and, and what's coming in the next couple of weeks. Sure. Before I give you my views on healthcare, let me share with everyone a little bit of a tutorial because I think this is really important. There's roughly 200 countries in the world. Of those 200 countries, 40 of them are considered industrialized, developed countries. Of those 40 industrialized, developed countries, 39 of them have universal health care. Only one doesn't. Guess who? The richest country in the history of the world, the United States of America. Is that true? It's true. Wow. Of, Of those 200 countries, they tend to follow one of four models. The first model is the uh, beverage model. It was started in England. And under that model of providing health care to everyone, they employ where the government owns the hospitals and the staff, the nurses, and the doctors work for the government. The second model is called the Bismarck model. It was started in in Germany, and that is where the employers and employees uh, fund health care for the citizens. The third model is called the national model, and that was started in Canada and is also employed across the the world. Uh, That's basically just using a national tax to provide universal health care. Then there's a fourth model. The fourth model is basically no model at all. It is where people pay for... Uh, their health needs at the time they receive them or barter for it or simply go without medical attention. Ironically, the United States has all four models. So the first wow. model, right, it's, it's, it's part of the reason it's so screwed up in the U.S. healthcare and why it's so difficult to come to a conclusion because it's quite bureaucratic and quite messy. So you know, we talked at first about the beverage model that was started in England where the, the government owns a hospital and the staff, nurses, and doctors work for the, for, for the government. That's exactly what we have with the Veteran Affairs Administration. Then mm-hmm. most people are familiar with the German model, the employer-employee funded model, except the countries that follow this model do it different than the United States in two key respects. One, that funding mechanism provides insurance not just for the employees and their families, but for everyone in the country. In addition... The insurance underwriters are not they're not for profit versus for profit like we have here in the United States. The third model, the national model that Canada and many other countries use, is exactly what Medicare and Medicaid is in the United States. And then unfortunately, the United States also has the fourth model that 160 underdeveloped countries utilize, which is no insurance at all for almost 30 million Americans. So because of that dysfunctionality we have is part of the reason that the United States spends 18.5% of our GDP on health care, which is twice as much as what these other 39 industrialized developed countries spend. Now, you'd probably say, well, we must have really, really good medical coverage and, and health care in the United States if we're spending twice as much. The answer is no, we don't. We actually have, by all measurable key metrics, the United States tends to fall in the bottom quartile 
versus those other 39 countries. It's also one of the, the, the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States, not being able to pay your medical bills, and a leading cause of homelessness. Mm-hmm. So it's for all these reasons, it's clear that what we have is not working. Mm-hmm. And we have to get, in my opinion, to a, a broadened single-payer system. We have a single-payer system right now in Medicare. We need to broaden that and make it available to all Americans. And it's very easy to do through multiple steps, through a, a public option allowing people to sign up and, and, and have Medicare, and to making it uh, 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 free for certain socioeconomic levels, uh, which we have now in the case of Medicare, and continuing to extend it to the entire population of the United States. So I'm totally ignorant about this, but it, was this always the case? Like like the U.S. in the 1940s, what did it look like? Uh, yeah, it's a good question, and I don't have a quick answer for that. You know, I think health care has evolved over time, just as I pointed out in, in uh, the beverage model and the Bismarck models were actually started in uh, the late 40s, post-World War II. So you had all these countries recognize that universal health care was very important. As they rebuilt Europe, they extended universal health care to their citizens. Somewhere along the way, the United States didn't get that memo and decided to go a different direction. So it's, it almost sounds like it's like the U.S. tax code, where you just keep adding on crap to it, that now it's just this quagmire of you can't even understand what's going on with it, that it's, you know, there's a loophole over here, and, oh, these 10 million people got dropped off over here, and, you know, like it's this monstrous thing that you can't wrap your mind around because it's, as you say, it's four different things. and Yeah, you're exactly correct. Totally dysfunctional. And, 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 and that dysfunctionality, you know, messes with people's lives, and... Yeah, I mentioned earlier um, uh, that one of the outcomes of our messed up healthcare system is the increased level of homelessness. And 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 you know, for your, the listeners, I know you see it, regardless of what city you live in, whether you go by the Santa Ana River, if you're up in Sacramento, San Francisco, it doesn't matter what city you're in. Uh, the homelessness issue here in California is significant and needs to be addressed. And these are not folks that made a purposeful decision that, yes, I want to live in a tent um, on Santa Ana River. That's not the case at all. These are you know fellow citizens who, for whatever reason, have fallen on hard times, often being driven by their inability to pay medical expenses. And now I read there's a huge hepatitis A outbreak amongst our homeless population, at least in Laguna Beach. It's, well, I think all across Orange County, it's becoming an incredible problem. And now they need access to medical care for that, right. vaccinations that they obviously aren't getting. Right. Uh, you know, it's and it's funny because I keep looking at how many times the Republicans are trying to ram this thing through, which I am sympathetic to, you know, whatever their jobs are to their constituents that they told them that they were going to do this. Um, but it, it just feels so ill thought through that, that, you know, they come back two weeks later and like, now I have the answer. Oh, that failed two weeks later. Oh, now I have it. Now it's going to work. And, you know, it just sounds like, you know, your five-year-old running off to their room, you know, with their homework. And obviously, you know, they haven't thought through it. And they're running back. Right. Trying to get you to sign the paper. And you're like, you know, I, this is so ill thought through that I feel like you need to spend, you know, five years to really sit down and make something that works here. Yeah, Trump care has is quickly becoming zombie care. It just keeps mm-hmm. coming back from the dead. And it's so unfortunate <laughs> right. because it's not a good bill what's being proposed. And we can talk about that in a minute. But when you think about the the Republicans have been dissing uh, Obamacare since it passed and, and talking about repealing and replacing it. And not to have a 
well-thought-out plan over eight years that could be discussed with uh, the public as well as Congress and and have go through proper channels. And if it made sense, pass. But if it doesn't make sense, okay, what are the options? But to continually throw something against the wall in hopes that it will stick so that you can go back to your constituents and say, see, I did exactly what I would say I would do. I would repeal it. Well, great. So we're going to throw millions and millions more Americans out on the street without medical care. And you're proud of that fact? That's a horrible outcome. And what's being proposed right now is the worst proposal yet. And hopefully uh, it will not pass. And and uh, some of those leaders in the Republican Party will step forward and make sure it doesn't happen. You wonder if they're just trying to wear us down, you know, that after a while you're like, I don't care. Just do whatever you <laughs> Like, I just don't want to hear about it anymore. <laughs> I'm so afraid of North Korea. I don't even care about my health care anymore. And then they're going to get whatever done that they get done. And, you know, I mean, you just wonder what their strategy I don't Maybe they don't have a strategy. but It's 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 not a good strategy. And the strategy here of trying to move health care to the states is uh, uh, it, and only guaranteeing those block payments through 2027 is basically going to make the situation uh, 100 times worse in 2027 if this legislation passed. You do wonder if we're just going to become 50 different countries by the end of all this, you know. And I hope not. Like, yeah, this this grand experiment called democracy that we started in 1776 is uh, uh, the greatest thing that's ever occurred in the history of the world. And, and I hope that uh, continues on for generations and generations. Well, that leads me to a question that I forgot to ask you, which is why the hell you would do this. Like you see this, <laughs> you see this quagmire and you and, you know, I think a lot of people would run the other way, but you're willing to step in. And uh, tell me about that. Well, we're all stepping in. You're stepping in. You're stepping in by having this this call right now. Your listeners are stepping in by listening to this. And that's exactly what has to happen. Whether, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, now more than ever, you need to be engaged in politics. You need to be engaged in the future of your country. And we can no longer take it for granted that those we elect are smart enough or smarter than us or educated better than us that they can take forward with all the ideas and the the leadership that is required. We need to be engaged in the process. And we can't be enraged because, you know, Trump won. We need to be engaged. So I would encourage anybody and everybody, be like our forefathers. Go to the local tavern and have a beer and talk about politics. Respect each other's opinion. Have dialogue. Don't simply look for a reaffirming message to what your political beliefs are, because if you do that, then we're just all uh, talking to ourselves and not talking to each other. Get out there, talk to people, understand viewpoints, find the common ground, put the country's work first, party second. I love that you said that, because if anything has come out of the last um, nine months or year, whatever, however long we've been in this um, dream that we can't wake up from, (laughs) It is that. It is that it's probably one of the first times in my life that I've woken up, that I've paid attention, that I haven't taken things for granted. You know, I I mean, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but I probably, when Obama was in, in office, could not have told you his cabinet members because I was like, he's got this. I, I don't know what's going on in there, but I know he's got this. And now I know every cabinet member, and now I know everybody's position. And, and um, it is good to not take democracy for granted, for whatever it- that's worth. Exactly. And and our country has become way too polarized by the Democratic and Republican parties. And part of the reason I'm running is, frankly, I was fed up with that polarization. And, and I'm not blaming one or the other. I blame them both. 
And I look at uh, a, a couple interesting statistics to sh- share with you. Uh, one of these is from 1978 and one's from 1982, but I'm going to call it 1980 since I can't remember which is which. But it was about the, uh, the Senate. If you looked in that time frame at the 100 senators serving the United States, and if you looked at the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat, you would have found 60 senators falling between those two positions. Basically, what we call moderates. Today, and for five years straight, there hasn't been one. And, and that tell, is telltaling as to why nothing seems to get done because of the polarization. Same statistic, uh, another statistic around that same time frame. Those same senators voted with their party approximately 60% of the time. 60%, not much over majority. Today it's 95%. One of the big things that has driven this partisan politics to the extreme degree that we see right now is a decision in uh, 2010 called Citizens United. Citizens United was a decision by the Supreme Court that opened the floodgates for uh, super PAC money, dark money is what many people call it, to come into the system. And both parties are, are, are guilty of receiving this dark money. Um, it's 60% Republicans and 40% Democrats. But what it did in 2010, there was about $160 million of dark money that came into the campaign um, election system. And when the Supreme Court made this decision, they said they didn't really think it would have any impact on dark mo- additional dark money coming into uh, uh, into the election process. 2016, six years later, it was $1.6 billion. So we had a tenfold increase. So now you've got politicians who, if they don't tow the party line, there are these special interests who will come out and mount a candidate against them from their same party. So being being a moderate is no longer in vogue because uh, there's such economic pressure on on these politicians. We're seeing a backlash now, which is great. We're finally seeing folks recognize that we are so stagnant in the direction of our country that we have to get back to having common ground for common sense. So dark money, you mean like Philip Morris or some lobbying Koch group? Brothers is Koch certainly Brothers. one of the Koch biggest. Brothers, yep, right. yep, and exactly, oh. yes. Gotcha. Aye, aye, aye. Um, so let's get on to, you know, you know, we're halfway through and I have so, I have 800 questions to ask you. So let's get on to, um, immigration, which is another topic near and dear to Californians' hearts because we're, especially Southern California and especially campuses like UCI, um, and Rohrbacher, really. <laughs> so, um, what do we do? What do we do? Yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously a very complex, uh, issue and, and the one piece of that complex issue that's getting the most notoriety right now is uh, the Dreamers and DACA. But I would actually like to take people back a little bit to uh, 2015. And, and forgive me if I get the Senate bill wrong, but I believe it was Senate Bill 744. Uh, this bill was comprehensive immigration reform in 2015. It passed um, with bipartisan support in the Senate with numerous senators from border states of Mexico that were Republicans supporting this bill. This bill was, uh, it would have answered many of the questions and concerns that uh, many of us would like to see regarding the multitude of immigration issues, whether it's uh, securing the border better, not by a wall, but, uh, uh, but by uh, other means, 
as well as DACA, uh, a road for amnesty, addressing visa issues, overstaying a visa, as well as executing new visas. All of this was in this comprehensive bill. So it goes to the House of Representatives uh, to, to be voted on there. And Speaker Boehner would not allow it out of committee because the Tea Party members of the House of Representatives uh, threatened him that he would lose his speakership if it was brought to the floor. Wow. So it never came to the floor, yet it passed the Senate with over 60, or I think it was 60 senators supporting it. It's a perfect example where you have bipartisan support for a bill that political aspirations and the extremes dictating the outcome. Incredible. It is. So I and, think you're not for the wall. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not for the wall, but I am for secure borders. And, yeah. and it is important for us to know when people come into our country, how long they're here and when they're supposed to go back. And all the focus uh, uh, for many is on our southern border, which is uh, unfair. Fifty percent of those who are undocumented residents in the United States are people who have come here on a legitimate visa that has expired. Fifty percent. So it's it's unfair to make this all about um, uh, Mexican migrant workers. That's simply not the case. Right, right. Yeah, and DACA, I know, is just a huge issue on this campus. I mean, there's a, a lot of dreamers um, in u- universities, and, um, yeah, it's... Well, it is. Yeah, I, I, one of the... Uh, there, there's so many horrendous examples of of the actions being taken by the Trump administration. And, and you know, one that always comes to my mind quickly is, is a woman who uh, came to the United States um, uh, uh, illegally with her two children. And she used a uh, Social Security card of someone else so she could get a job, uh, which is a felony in the United States. It is a nonviolent felony. Um, but because it was a felony um, and she's been checking in with uh, uh, ICE all along and doing all the things she was supposed to be doing. But when Trump came into power, um, uh, she was deported, deported with her two kids crying in high school, watching their mother get deported. You know, this is not the United States that we want to see, um, where there is no compassion, where there is no empathy. Um, uh, certainly violent felons that uh, are, are here illegally? Should they go back? Yes, as long as we can make sure they stay back, too. Um, but in cases like this, a non-felon, um, a non-violent felon, uh, it's asinine that we're using government resources and tax dollars to do that. And by the way, all of these protections against letting, um, I mean, there's been a lot of protections in immigration already. I mean, you, you know, the process of getting a visa here is not an easy one. And um I don't know. I mean, I, my understanding is that Obama was not, not all that an easygoing guy on immigrants. So it's uh, yeah, there, there's so many areas for improvement. That was actually one of the things that was in that 2015 bill as well was increasing visas for uh, certain job areas. So as an example, um, uh, we have a lot of a lot of the visas that are issued are, are issued to folks who, whether it's engineering or some other advanced degrees. And basically, they're here for three years. They do a great job. They're getting ready to start companies. And what do we do? We, we send them home instead of building the economy here. It doesn't make much sense. Right, right. And then the flip side of this is you've got Dana Rohrbacher who wants to charge a million dollars to allow people to have citizenship in the United States. Right. Aye, aye, aye. 
You are tuned in to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest today is Harley Ruda. He is a um, hopeful for Congress, the 48th District, in 2018, running against Rohrabacher. Um, you know, education, I think, is another sticky one, and I, I feel like it kind of dovetails on immigration in some ways because I guess the counterargument is now, you know, it's kids are having such a hard time getting into colleges. They're not building very many more universities or institutions um, and the kids are now competing kind of on a global scale instead of on a national scale. And, you know, back in back in my day, I got in with, you know, a 3.7 or 8. And now, you know, you're not going to get into college with 3.8. <laughs> now you need a 4.5. Right. So I, I have heard people say, well, you know, from Republican friends of mine, you know, now our kids can't get into school. Now they're competing against all these other countries. And that's not fair. Anything to say to that? Absolutely. It's actually one of the most important issues facing our country right now are jobs and a diminishing middle class. Mm-hmm. One of the best ways to address the diminishing middle class and creating high-quality jobs is providing uh, advanced education opportunities for our kids. K through 12 made perfectly good sense post-World War II on a global stage, but today it needs to be P through C, and it, or, or mm-hmm. if they're not going to college, some sort of advanced skill set development. Uh, what we're seeing in some parts of the United States needs to be made available throughout the U.S., and that is providing free college education for lower socioeconomic levels and middle-class levels and using the community colleges of the respective states is a great opportunity to be able to do that. Now, when I say free, I still think there ought to be some skin in the game, whether that's 10 or 15 hours of community service on behalf of the university you're attending who's providing you a free education, fine. Let's, let's weave that into it. Uh, but the idea is that we have to have the best educated kids in America if we're going to compete on the global stage. If you create more middle-class jobs, a lot of wonderful things come out of that. First, just the pride the individual has in being able to have a successful job. Second, they're going to generate more taxes over the next 40-year career than they would if they had a lower-paying job, right? It's common sense. So more money goes into the uh, federal government to support more programs. Third, they're going to have less impact on social services because they're in the middle class, so they don't need to rely on the government to plug those pieces that they can't handle themselves. In addition, for that lower socioeconomic level, you're breaking the cycle of poverty by getting them into the middle class and moving up. So there's a lot of wonderful reasons why we should be doing this. And we're seeing it be done in some states right now. And the most notable one, and here's why it's notable, because the state is is hardcore Republican. It looks like California, except on the Republican side with a Republican governor and a re- Republican legislature, and it's Tennessee. Hmm. Tennessee now offers free uh, community college education to all of its kids, really? which I think is a fabulous idea. New York is moving in this direction, too. So we can learn from what some states are doing and recognizing that uh, that if, if, if we don't, again, make our kids the smartest kids in the world, someone else will, and we're going to lose. And I do think there's some sort of stigma against vocational schools that we need to change the mindset on education. I mean, you know, the traditional four-year university is great for some career paths, but I do feel like, you know, if you took kids into a Google or something to give them practical hands-on education where they're not spending. I mean, these kids are coming out with crippling debt, you know, of, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in some cases. Yeah. And um, I don't know if we can bring the 
the fun back into vocational education somehow. <laughs> well, we, we can. You know, part of that decline in middle class jobs is also uh, directly correlated to the decline in union jobs. Mm. And, and, and that's due to the continued attack on unions by the right and, uh, and Republicans in general. Uh, unions play an absolutely instrumental part in our economy and the growth of that middle class. They also provide a key part to what you're talking about, and that is uh, those advanced skills uh, that are non-college uh, but, but are so important to our overall, overall economy. I'm fortunate I've got four unions that have already endorsed our campaign. Okay. And when I go to these, any of these unions and you see the training they do, especially in the building and trade industries, I'm just so blown away by how uh, uh, difficult and rigorous and in-depth that training is. You come to the conclusion you really never want to be in a building unless it was built by one of these guys because I was that impressed. Amazing. So I want to switch a little bit to your campaign, and, um, you know, we can all come to our agreements about Rohrabacher, but um, I hear that there are now nine nine folks that have signed up to go to battle with Rohrabacher, and so I want to give you a chance to sort of distinguish yourself against uh, some of the other competition out there. Sure. It, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the proverbial clown car. The door opens and all these people are getting <laughs> out, right? It's like, wow, they keep coming out. Is there really that many? People are outraged. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, so you're correct. I think it's uh, right now we have uh, the incumbent, Dana Rohrabacher. We have another Republican challenger to him. We have uh, two independents now, one just announced today, okay. and I believe we have six or seven Democrats. Um, why people should support me is for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, we there's a lot of pieces that go into a successful campaign and, 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 and getting a candidate elected. Uh, some of it is uh, as mundane as raising more money than anybody else, and that is a, one of the key metrics. And, and by that metric, we're well ahead of all the other competitors. Uh, second is having endorsements. We've got a significant number of endorsements from uh, uh, politicians, both at the state level and local level, as well as activists, business leaders, academia, uh, and so on. Uh, third is the number of volunteers. We have over 500 volunteers. Uh, but fourth, and really what's most important, is what the voter believes. And you know, we believe that what our campaign stands for and the values we stand for will resonate with the voters across the 48th district uh, better than anybody else. And you know, my job is to get out there and talk about why, uh, why, why we're the right campaign to support. What are your like? What would distinguish you on some of the issues from some of your competitors? I think the biggest thing is I have a really deep grasp of the issues, mm-hmm. and I would hope that those that are listening now recognize that um, uh, my, my answers are, are, are well thought out and factually based on somebody who understands these issues. No one's going to understand all of the issues uh, as deeply as any certain expert, but you've got to be able to have a basic understanding of politics and the issues and working towards uh, as I stated earlier, uh, common sense for common ground. And my background from running companies from early stage to 10,000 people, I know what it's like from mergers and acquisitions to managing large organizations that you have to work with a, a diverse set of people to accomplish your, your, your joint mission. And I'm confident I can work with the folks in Washington to uh, do exactly what we would expect a congressperson from the 48th district to do. 
The one thing that I thought Trump would bring to the table from the businessman's perspective was an ability to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies. For some reason, I thought, I don't hate this guy, but I think that is a strength he could bring. And I think that, you know, from the businessman's perspective, um, you know, it's it's not all bad to come to politics from from a very diverse, rich background in other things. He has not proven himself to, to do any of that. But, <laughs> but I can see the virtue of you coming in from having, you know, a, a broad spectrum of experience across other industries. Yeah, it is unfortunate. You would have thought that somewhere along his business career that some of the lessons he learned, uh, but maybe the way he's been able to conduct business is different than what a lot of other business folks have, uh, have, have learned. And when it comes to big pharma, that's another topic in the, in the healthcare debate on several fronts. One, we provide big pharma with a great opportunity to build world-class drugs, often with the support of federal tax dollars to provide incentives for them to develop those drugs. So why then does the United States, the citizens of the United States, pay more for their drugs than anywhere else? That is crazy. We should be paying the lowest prices, not the highest prices, because we're the ones that help these companies develop them. In addition, Big Pharma used the ability to prevent uh, Medicare and Medicaid from negotiating drug prices. And that has to be changed. We have to allow these entities, these single-payer systems, the ability to negotiate harder on drug costs and bring it down. Yeah. Oh, so much to talk about. Um, Let's move on to foreign affairs um, because I know North Korea is on everybody's mind tonight. Iran is now on everybody's mind tonight. Argentina is also. (laughs) There's so many places on everybody's mind tonight. Um, So it is the case that Trump can... take unilateral action against North Korea without congressional approval if he deems it to be, you know, that we're kind of in the 11th hour and he's got to make a decision and he's got to go so he doesn't need congressional approval. I'm getting that right. Yeah, you're actually you're bringing up a a couple of interesting things. You've got um, uh, if you're talking about nuclear strike capacity, there's it's called first strike uh, uh, capacity. And and I actually disagree with the way it is uh, currently set up. Right now, the President of the United States has the ability to uh, uh, respond to nuclear attack or start a nuclear attack. Now, listen, I completely agree the President of the United States should have unilateral ability to respond to a nuclear attack on the United States. If we don't provide that, there's no way we're going to get Congress to make the decision to give it to him, right? So it's kind of a no-brainer. Yes, he has to have the ability to respond. But I don't think the President of the United States, and, and when I say the President of the United States, I'm not talking about President Trump. I'm talking about any president past or future, should never have the ability to do a first-strike nuclear attack, in my opinion, without having either Congress or a subcommittee, in all likelihood, of Congress, because Congress is the one that declares war, having the ability to give the president the authority to launch the first strike. It, It does not make sense to me as to why the Congress has given up that essential right, at least in the case of first strike. Well, I wonder if if it's by nature of the weapons changing. You know, when you used to declare war, it was infantry or it was something a little bit slower. <laughs> now, now it feels like the the speed of everything is accelerated so much that people have to make very split second decisions. And I, I wonder if that is sort of the history of how that came about. Or, well, again, I, I, I agree with that when it comes to responding. First, yeah, right. But when it first strike, 
I, I, I can't imagine a situation where the president in, in, in a short period of time has to determine why we need to send nuclear weapons to a country that has not launched nuclear weapons against us. Right, right. Do you have any predictions of what's coming in the next six months? Uh, or six hours? <laughs> six, six. I, I think one thing that uh, we can all predict is that Trump will be unpredictable. Right. <laughs> I saw that uh, Kim Jong-un was, released a statement tonight, and they said, what are, they, what are the odds of Trump coming out with a tweet? And they said about 98%, but you know, <laughs> we advise him not to, but they... <laughs> It will be absolutely un, uh, you know, he won't be able to resist it. So anyway, my guest today is Harley Ruda. He is um, going to challenge Rohrabacher for his seat in the 48th district coming up in 2018. Um, we are wishing him all all the expedient luck we can wish him this evening. Um, so let's talk a little bit about women's rights, um, reproductive rights, um, all these things being threatened and not so much of an issue for California. I don't, I hope, I don't, I don't think so. You know, I think, feel like if we were going to live in one of these 50 states, we're living in a pretty good one right now. Um, but, um, I'll, I'll allow you to sort of speak forth on your, on your thoughts on women, reproductive rights, women in the workplace, equal pay, all of, all of those sort of things. I'll barrage you with 18 questions. And I'll just <laughs> like, <laughs> you can answer any one of them. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I, I, we could talk about rights in general, too, beyond women's rights, because I do think it's really important. And I'm going to answer your question, but I do think it's important now more than ever, because w- whether we're talking about women's rights, immigrants' rights, refugee rights, voter rights, worker rights, LGBT rights, there's an assault going on by uh, Trump and the alt-right. And it is uh, typical of an authoritarian government where they're trying to uh, uh, get people fired up at those that are weakest. And we saw it, we've seen it in Germany and we've seen it uh, in, in countless other countries. And that's exactly what Trump is doing, using fear against those that are least uh, capable of fighting. And the reason I bring it up for everyone is because now more than ever, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder, locked arm in arm in fighting back on this on this gross attack on all of our rights. And, and it, there, there's an old quote from a guy um, Martin Nemore, I believe was his name. He was a, uh, uh, a, a pastor, uh, clergyman in Germany in 1930s. And he was very supportive of the rise of Hitler initially because, uh, you know, the pride in the country and the culture and, and again, that authoritarian nation-building idea. And uh, that support changed. And eventually he ended up in a concentration camp when he, he fought back as to where it, it ended up going. And his quote, which is in many of the uh, memorials around the world, was first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. I did not speak out because I was not Jewish. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. And I think that's a really poignant quote because I feel that applies to us now. Again, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder. So the attack on women's rights is an attack on all of our rights. And specifically in attacking women's rights, uh, the, the reproductive issue is, is certainly one of the big ones. And this is not a black and white um, issue in the way that it's being often portrayed by those that uh, want to prevent women having a right over their reproductive rights. When NARAL has done a great job of, of 
developing this discussion to include uh, a third question. And the question is, regardless of your personal belief on abortion, do you think the government should prevent women's reproductive rights? When that's added to it, you find a third rail, so to speak, of Americans who personally are against abortion but support a woman's right to make that decision and do not support government being involved. It's actually when you take the, the w- women's right period and that additional rail, 70% of Americans support a woman's right to control her reproductive um, uh, decisions. And that holds true in red states, too. It's 60% in red states. So what's being fed by the Republican Party to folks around the country is simply not the truth as to where we sit. Uh, That's one issue for women. We certainly have the um, uh, gender pay um, issue as well. Uh, uh, That needs to be addressed. There should be equal pay for equal work. Uh, We also have the issue of maternity leave and paternity leave. Um, Frankly, I think Israel does a really good job in this regard. Uh, Israel has a defined number of weeks for a couple, and they define that couple as, uh, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't have to be the traditional uh, married husband and wife. It could be an LGBT couple who have adopted um, a child or had a child. Uh, in the way that it works in Israel, there's a set number of weeks, and the couple divides it as they see fit. They can take it simultaneously. They can give it all to one. They can... Uh, bounce back and forth. It's a great idea. I would love to see the United States adopt something along those lines. That is a great idea. I haven't heard that. That is a great idea. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I sometimes wonder if our country progressed so quickly over the past eight years, 16 years, really eight years, um, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ rights, and that there's now just this backlash of people saying, I'm tired of being politically correct. I'm tired of being told what to do, or, you know, being told what I can say, and I'm tired of feeling offensive, and I'm tired of people coming for my guns, and I'm just, I'm so angry, you know, that there was like this bottled up anger somewhere that is now just being unleashed, and <laughs> people were waiting for this, right? Yeah, I think you're right, and I think part of the problem is that uh, we're all guilty that thinking tolerance was was satisfactory, and and tolerance is not acceptance and embracement. And that's where we need to get to. We need to recognize that everybody, regardless of, uh, of their background, uh, uh, their, their sexual preference, uh, whether what color their skin is, um, what their religious identity is, what their gender identity is, regardless, they all play a very important part to the fabric and diversity of the United States and actually makes us a stronger country. So it can't be just about I will tolerate the type of person you are, I should be embracing it because, again, we're a stronger country if we do that. Yeah. Just a couple of minutes on the economy. Um, how's Orange County doing? Are we um, exceeding uh, sort of our our um, prior economic uh, gains? Or how, are, how are we economically doing? Yeah, Orange County is solid economically, but the problem is it's it's disproportionate and, and, and becoming incredibly expensive or actually, frankly, inability to even live in Orange County for uh, middle class and lower socioeconomic levels. I think I just read where the median uh, home price in Orange County right now is $600,000. I'm originally from Clovis, Ohio. Uh, Let me tell you, $600,000 home, and and you're probably living on the nicest home on the block. Um, 
the fact is we've got to make more affordable housing here. And and we also have to make sure that we have good-paying jobs, which I talked about a little bit earlier, but also part of that is the minimum wage. The minimum wage right now, if the minimum wage, I think, is a, a $7 and, and, and some odd cents, if it was indexed to inflation when it was passed, it would be at $10.90. So it's it's well below what it should be. And even $10.90 doesn't cut it in Orange County. Um Minimum wage, there has to be some indexing of minimum wage to the cost of living uh, of the metropolitan area. And uh, and I believe that's what we need here. It's funny you should say that because I was just talking to somebody about Laguna Beach. There's There are no <clears throat> 20 to like 40-year-olds in Laguna Beach because they I, either you inherit your parents or your grandparents' house um, or you have to move out. You know, you're either living with your parents so you can stay until you're 20 or however old, and then you absolutely can't afford to live there. So they said, you know, there's this funny thing about Laguna, which it's either high school kid, you know, it's either kids or it's kind of grandparents, you know, or it's 40 40 up. Right. Yes, it's a challenge. We have to address it. Yeah, good point. Um, So we're drawing down on our time, but I kind of want to give you a a closing statement time uh, to sort of sum up – you know, any any thoughts you, I don't know, if people want to get involved in your campaign, I want to give them an opportunity to do that, how they find you online, um, and kind of any closing statement you want to give on on, uh, on the campaign and what's coming up. Sure. The, the sales pitch first, and the web address is Harley, H-A-R-L-E-Y, for F-O-R Congress, harleyforcongress.com. Uh, please come. And, you know, my dad raised me in, in, with the idea that you give your, your time, your talents, and your treasures um, back. And uh, we would certainly love anybody that's willing to get involved in the campaign to provide time, talents, and treasures. Uh, you're, you're giving us time by just listening to this radio interview. So thank you for that. Uh, your talents. If you want to volunteer for the campaign, uh, uh, please go to info at harleyforcongress.com and, and uh, shoot us an email. And your treasures. Uh, yeah, is is difficult as it is to for a lot of people to be able to make contributions to campaigns, as Bernie pointed out, it's incredibly important every single dollar, and uh, we'd welcome the opportunity for all of you to do the same. You know, join and and jump on board, and uh, with you, we could be the change we want to see for the greater good. I love that you have. I mean, not that you're outpacing everybody in money and volunteers. Tell me again, how many volunteers you have? Over five hundred now. That's so great. Thank That's you. So great. And they're doing what? Like, what can you expect if you sign up to be a volunteer? The cool thing about being a volunteer, it's a very democratic process. You get to pick what you want to do. So there's lots of different things they can do, (laughs) whether it's uh, uh, making phone calls, uh, writing uh, uh, copy, helping with policy development, uh, graphic artist, um, uh, you name it, we can find something for you to do. And the time to get involved or the time to vote is not just... Uh, November of 2018. It's. I was just educated on this recently. It's. It's actually like May or June, right? The, yes, the, it's the, June. June. June of 18 is the primary, and in California we have what's called a jungle primary. The top two vote getters move forward to the general, and only the top two. And you don't vote only in your party. Everybody votes for whoever they want to. Mm-hmm. Top two vote getters move forward. That is. Good, timely information. So, uh, yeah. So don't sit on your laurels until (laughs) until a year from now. Or your wallets, right. Don't (laughs) stand up, for God's sake. (laughs) Harley Ruta, this was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time.
That was Harley Ruda for Congress. Again, it's Harley, H-A-R-L-E-Y-F-O-R, congress.com, right? Right? Yes. And um, that is all the time we have for today. We'll be right back here with you next Thursday. So until next time, thanks so much for joining me. Have a great, great day.